This afternoon we'll be discussing the biblical doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. So in connection with that, we're reading from Romans 8. Romans 8, the verses 12 to 39. Romans 8, the verses 12 to 39. And you'll be able to find that on page 1300 of your pew Bible. He's just finished speaking about how there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He says in response to all of that which follows, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you will put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption, into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for. We, we, not, we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Now we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? 
It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore, who is also risen? Who is even at the right hand of God? Who also makes intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So far the word of God. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, did you take note of the words we read today? Romans 8, verse 28 to 30. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What do we have in our passage here? This is what is named the golden chain of salvation. He predestined, he called, he justified, and then glorified. The golden chain of salvation. This is the action of a sovereign God. This is eternal love which plays out from a place before time and space. When the everlasting God stretched out his hands to mere creatures, the work of his hands, and he showed them his grace. Now, as we look at this passage today in light of the doctrines of grace, and we've been going through, there are a few things that I want to point out. First of all, I want you to consider what we read in verse 28. Romans 8, verse 28. We know that all things work together for good. To those who love God. To those who are called according to His purpose. What does this highlight? This passage highlights the sovereignty of God. This passage places us before a God It places before us a God who is strong, a God who knows everything, a God who is in control, and a God who works even in the smallest things, even in the saddest and most terrible things, to benefit those who love him. Do you doubt this? Consider what Jesus says in Matthew 6. God cares about creation so much that he knows when even a sparrow, what we would consider one of the most inconsequential of all birds, falls to the ground. Kids, can you tell the difference between one sparrow and another in front of the bird feeder? You can tell apart one, maybe two, sure. But God is able to tell each and every one of them in the world apart. 
and he cares for each and every one of them. Will he not so much more care for you? When you get a haircut, can you tell the difference between the hairs that fall? God knows each one. He numbers the hairs on your head. When you go out at night, can you count the stars? He knows the stars by name. Matthew 10, verse 29, Not a sparrow falls to the ground outside of God's care, outside of God's sovereign control. God is in control. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop with God caring for those who love Him. This passage that we read goes on to describe who exactly it is that loves Him. It says God works together. We know in all things that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Those who love Him are those whom God has called to love Him. Do you love God? Think about how amazing this is for a moment. Do you love God? That's God's gift to you. You wouldn't even be able to love Him. You wouldn't even want to love Him. You'd be joined with the rest of the world in rejecting Him and everything good that comes with Him if it wasn't for the fact that he chose to love you first. Wait, you might think. Doesn't God look ahead to see if we'll love him? Didn't he pick me because I love him? Isn't that why he works things to our benefit? He works things to the benefit of those who love him? No. As we saw before, as fallen people, we reject God. We have a creaturely will, a will to carry out our own desires to fulfill our own satisfactions. But we do not have a free will. We are completely unable and unwilling to come to God. We gave that up long ago with the fall of our first parents, Adam and Eve in paradise. Ever since then, humanity has been content to reject God, content to carry on in their own sin, and God allows it. It's not that God makes people sin. It's not that people are dragged, kicking and screaming into sin. It's that people choose sin, and God gives them over to the desires of their heart, and the desires of their heart destroy them. God giving people over to their sin and its consequences is a just thing. We learn that in Romans 1. And he does it. But out of his grace, he didn't leave the whole world in his position. Out of this grace, he still created a faithful remnant. And these, God does not leave in their sin. perseverance of the saints does not have God giving those people over to their sin. Instead, he chose to give those over to Jesus Christ. He chose to save you because of his mercy, grace, and love. If God looked through time, if he looked down the halls of time, what would he see? Romans 3, he would see no one who seeks God. Ephesians 2, 
It would see people who are dead in their transgressions and sin. By nature, children of wrath. He chose to show love to an undeserving people. All of your sins, he knew about it. He looked down the halls of time and that's what he saw. And he chose to give you grace instead of justice. He chose to take out your heart of stone, that hard heart that you freely gave over to follow your own desires, and he gave you a heart of flesh. He gave you faith. We read in Philippians 1 verse 29, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Belief is a gift of God granted to you. We can see it from that passage. Ephesians 2, verse 8 to 9, quoted that a number of times over the series of the doctrines of grace. By grace, you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's a gift. 2 Timothy 2, verse 24 to 25, a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, that God perhaps will grant them repentance. Repentance is a gift of God. When God wants to save someone, he saves them. When God wants to bring someone from death to life, he carries them. Lazarus, come forth, comes the cry. And the dead man, Lazarus, responds to the voice of his maker. can compare it to this. When you breathe, is it you that breathes? Or is it God that gives you life and breath? Well, you would say, I do breathe. When I inhale, it's me holding my breath. And yet, it's still God who gives you life and breath. When you believe, you really do believe. And yet it's still God who gives you life and faith. You really believed. Don't take away from that. Don't doubt that. You really believed because God raised you to life. But it was God who raised you to life. Never forget that. Because it's important to keep in mind as we move ahead from looking to the past to looking to the future. The grace of our triune God preserves. If you are here today, it is completely and wholly the grace of God. We owe him everything. But will it be enough to keep us in him? If we look at where we've come from and how we got there, it seems almost foolish to ask such a question. And yet we do. We do because the failing is not in God's heart, but because it's in our own. We know our own fickleness. The hymn writer said it well when he said, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. We are prone to wander. But 
Can we wander to such an extent as to grieve God enough to let us drop from life back into death? It's often the question. And isn't that the fear? That I would wander? We can't look ahead down the halls of time. I know of one boy, 13 or 14, who had this fear. He loved the Lord, but he also knew his own wandering heart. He thought ahead to the future and he asked, what if I fall away? What if I suddenly don't love the Lord anymore? What if I go away from him? It drove him to tears when speaking of it with his dad. What are we to say to such a child? What are we to say to ourselves if this is our fear? Beloved, the first thing we are to do is to ask ourselves the question, is my faith sincere? Do I truly love God? Do I love Jesus? When I sin and turn to Him, do I stand amazed at His grace towards me and forgiving my sin? Do I strive to live for Him not just because I have to, but because I love Him? That's what separates the people in the covenant. You have two groups. Those who love the Lord, who truly love the Lord, whom God has worked this in their hearts, and those who do not. Do you see someone who doesn't know Jesus and pursue a life of holiness, but when he was young, he either prayed the sinner's prayer or he was baptized into the covenant? The Bible says that if God saves someone, they'll be sanctified by His Spirit. He will guide their feet from stumbling. They'll sin, and then He'll lift them up again. If someone falls and doesn't get up, 1 John 2 verse 19, He said, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest. That it might be made manifest, that it might be made clear that none of them were of us. 1 John 2, verse 19. Brothers and sisters, make your calling and election sure. The proof that you can have, the assurance that you can find that you are truly saved is not that you once believed, not that you were once baptized, but that you are believing. Do you know him? Do you love him? Are you repenting and believing in your life? Now, occasionally we'll have it that we see people who do believe, who we do believe are Christian, who fall. Now, in light of what we just talked about, and in light of that passage from 1 John 2, verse 19, are we to say that no one who is Christian falls? How are we to look at people who fall into such sin? How are we to look at ourselves if we fall into such sin? Are we lost forever? Christians do indeed fall into sins, and they fall into serious sins sometimes. The canons of Dort point to the lamentable fall of David, Peter, and the other saints as examples of this. They do offend God. They do incur the guilt of death. This does not mean that they will die. 
But Jesus Christ, as, as Jesus Christ bore their sentence just as well as anyone else's, if they seek forgiveness in Jesus Christ, they'll be able to find forgiveness. But their guilt is real all the same. They wound their consciences when they do so. And they lose the sense of God's favor until they return to the right way through sincere repentance and God's fatherly face shines upon them. Will they fall away forever? Canons of Dort 5.6 talks about this. Chapter 5, Article 6. It says, Therefore God, who is rich in mercy, according to the unchangeable purpose of His election, does not completely withdraw His Holy Spirit from His own, even in their deplorable fall. Neither does He permit them to sink so deep that they fall away from the grace of adoption and the state of justification, or commit the sin unto death, or the sin against the Holy Spirit, and totally deserted by Him, plunge themselves into eternal ruin. That's the purpose of Jesus Christ coming into the world. To claim his own and to make them his own forever. We read a bit about that in Galatians 4, verse 6 and following. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. God sent His Son to adopt us. When we confess in our hearts, when, when we believe with our hearts that Jesus is Lord, and confess with our mouth, God raised Him from the dead, we are making a public profession of the fact that God has worked this in our hearts. God sent His Son to adopt us. And, when he sent, and then He sent the Spirit of His Son to cry out, Father, in our hearts. He grants us a love for Him, worked in us by His Spirit, a love which calls Him Father. Consider for a moment where you came from. Remember what we talked about not too long ago, about a fallen state. Every little bit of love, every drop that you have for God is from God. Do you think that God loved you because you were you? No, there was nothing to attract God to you. The theologian Jonathan Edwards compared our situation with relation to hell like a man who is holding a loathsome spider above a fire. Now, you kids might not know what loathsome means. Loathsome means like, well, exactly the feeling that you would get if you had a big hairy spider in your hand. It, God loathes your sin much more than you would loathe a big, hairy, ugly spider that has just landed on your hand over the fire. Wouldn't your reaction be to tip it in? And yet God's is not. God loathes your sin. That sin which is in you soaks you through and through from the time of your birth. Psalm 51 verse 5. And it made you more horrible than that spider would be. And yet he didn't leave you there. All of humanity 
by their own rights, would be held suspended over the fire of hell. But he didn't leave you there. You had eternal gloom facing you, but he didn't leave you there. If you truly believe in Christ today, God warmed your heart. He took you from being a loathsome creature and he gave you faith. He washed you clean in Christ. He made you a new creation in him. And do you know what's beautiful about new creations? God doesn't look at them in loathing. What does it say in Genesis? God looked at what he saw. God looked at what he had made and saw that it was very good. Christ took all of your sins upon himself. In Christ's death on the cross, God took all of your sin and eternal weight of it and placed it on him. Not because there was anything to attract you to him, but only because it was his good pleasure. He decided from eternity to place his love on you. He decided from eternity to wash you clean. He decided from eternity to take your dead heart and make it alive again, to bend it to love him, to sing out his new mercies every day in adoration of his name. In love, God decided to conform you to the image of his son, that his son might be the firstborn among many brothers. For that's exactly what it is to be conformed to the image of his son. It means to be placed into his mold, made into his likeness a fellow child adopted by God, a fellow brother to the one who is the true son of God. As we just read in Romans 8 verse 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Conforming. That's what God is doing in Jesus Christ. He's chosen his people to be his adopted children. He's predestined them, destined them from eternity to be conformed to the image of Christ. And day by day, like metal heated in a furnace, responding joyfully to the skillful hammer of the master craftsman, he molds and shapes and forms us until we match that final perfect image he has laid out for us. Having drawn us from the fire, our master craftsman will not lay it aside until he's completed his purpose. And we are shaped to perfection, transformed into purity, changed into kingdom children, to be with him forever. And that's where the analogy fails, doesn't it? Because God will not lay us aside. We read in Ephesians 1 verse 13, In Jesus you all so trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. When God has taken hold of his people by his spirit, when they believe in him, they belong to him, and he will keep them as his own for forever. Foreknown, predestined, called by him, justified by him and brought to glory. That's the golden chain. It cannot be broken. That's the guarantee to those that, that he grants to those who believe in Jesus Christ. Is that the assurance that you have? If you say, I don't know, then fall on your knees and trust him now. 
Seek that assurance. Beg for it. Not to make yourself proud, but to truly humble yourself. As the canons conclude, the certainty of perseverance, however, so far from making believers, true believers, proud and complacent, is rather the true root of humility, childlike reverence, genuine godliness, endurance in every struggle, fervent prayers, constancy in suffering, and in the confession of truth, and lasting joy in God. Further, the consideration of this benefit is for them an incentive, a spur, to the serious and constant practice of gratitude and good works, as is evident from the testimonies of Scripture and the examples of the saints. We read in John 5, verse 24, Most assuredly I say to you that he who hears my words and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. They have passed from death into life. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. They've become a new creation. God has reconciled us to him in Jesus Christ. We stand at this point in time. And we look ahead. We can't trust our own fickle hearts. But believing in Jesus Christ and putting our full confidence in Him, we can be assured that God has reconciled us in Jesus Christ. He set us right with Him, and He'll be with us to the end. As John Newton said in his famous hymn, Amazing Grace, Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. This grace will lead us home. Amen.